Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's a sad irony attached to the story of the mailboat MV Leinster. Just a few short weeks away from Armistice Day, or the end of World War I, she was attacked and sunk by German U-Boat 123. 569 of the 771 passengers on board lost their lives after Captain Robert Ram gave the order to fire three torpedoes at the vessel, which was one hour out from Dublin and on its way to Hollyhead. Amazingly, only four weeks previously, the Germans had requested peace talks with US President Woodrow Wilson. While the sinking definitely stalled any peace talks, Germany would argue that the war was still in progress and the Leinster was transporting 500 military personnel, in their view, making her fair game in any war. But the MV Leinster was also carrying 180 civilians, 22 postal workers who were busy sorting mail, and a crew of 70. This evening on Where the Road Takes Me, we continue and also conclude the story of the sinking of MV Leinster 100 years ago on October 10th, 1918. Good evening and welcome to the programme. This evening, in part two, we continue the story of the Howell sisters, Ida and Henrietta, who sailed on the Leinster after leaving their home in Court McSherry. We hear how Jack Higgins fared after escaping the sinking ship, the only postal worker to survive. Matthew Brophy, the postal worker who perished, not knowing he was to become a father. And we're on Whitty Island to hear about a brave American naval officer and the island's connection with the mailboat Leinster. The story of the Howell family is most definitely interesting. It's a story that centres around three continents and four countries, including Ireland. In February of 1871, Henrietta and Ida's father, Nicholas, dies. A census, three months later, records the family now living in Wallisley, Birkenhead and Liverpool. Henry and William Howell, the sisters' brothers, decide to emigrate to New Zealand, where their uncle Robert Wigmore was seemingly prospering. 
At the time, the government in London was now seeking able-bodied and talented people to go to New Zealand and help set up the colony there. Mary, now aged 50, took the extraordinary decision to move with the remainder of her family there and set up a new life. Despite the fact that none of the family had a talent that could be put to use in New Zealand, they found a way of availing of assisted passage, which would suggest that they were not financially well off. The voyage on the sailing ship Durette took 76 days, with Mary paying £14.10 shillings of the fare and the government paying the balance. Cork City and Cork McSherry-based historian Mary O'Leary once again takes up a story that has many twists and many turns. So we find Mary on the ship described as a farmer and her three children as farm, well they're not children, they're nearly adults at this stage, as farm servants. No, they weren't. But they had to do to qualify. That's the point. This was a a deception that they had to do to qualify and put them in the the category of people that would be useful in the colony and perhaps even get them a grant of land when they got to the other side. So things in the colony were tough, as I had said, and it appears that while William was prospering, the, the son that had gone before, he was young and fit. But Mary was already 50 years of age when she got there. And things just proved too much for Mary and by extension then for Nicholas Henrietta and Ida who went with her. And we don't know exactly what reason for them deciding to come home. The toughness of, of the conditions, I'm sure, had something to do with it. It would appear from what the lady in, in Australia has sent us back of the history that she knows, Robert Wigmore wasn't particularly welcoming either. But then on the other hand, bearing in mind what I was telling you about conditions there, Mm -hmm. conditions were tough. He couldn't afford to be taking on passengers. I mean, anyone who went there had to be useful and make their own way. And it would appear it was just too much for them. We don't know how long they actually stayed in New Zealand because the next record we find them is in 1896. So there's a 20-year gap there. But some time during that time, Mary Howell, Nicholas, Henrietta and Ida came back to England. And in 1896, we find them in the Cheshire uh, electoral records living in Wallasley in Liverpool, back to the same area where they had been originally. Dorothy Brophy is originally from Dublin and has strong West Cork roots. She's the librarian in Castletown Bear on the Bear Peninsula. Her grandfather, Matthew Brophy, was one of the postal workers sorting mail that morning on board the Leinster. Initially, he wasn't supposed to be working that day, but sometimes fate has a deadly way of dealing its cards. They left Kingston around 9 o'clock, and I think around 10 to 10, they had passed the Kish Lighthouse. And there were three, my understanding is that there were three torpedoes fired. The first one missed the boat, but the second one hit the post office. And blew it open and the third one then hit the bow and you know the, the, the ship was already sinking when the third torpedo hit but the post office workers had a chance they were situated below deck they were below deck, way yeah. b- well below deck yeah. and they were locked in yeah. apparently and well I suppose they had to be because of the, the what they were doing but they hadn't once the, the torpedo hit the post office they hadn't a hope you know and one man just that we've talked about earlier um, John John Higgins Jack Higgins was lucky that was he found an electrical wire and he was able to hold on to it and the water rising allowed him to get up and be saved. Michael Hall is originally from Dublin as well and he's a regular visitor to Castletown Bear. Last week on the programme we heard the account of his great-grandfather Jack Higgins and his miraculous escape from the bow of the ship. Jack Higgins was the only postal worker who survived. Jack managed to get into a lifeboat and he witnessed the third torpedo break the ship in two and watched many people go to a watery grave with her. 
He continued, I think he got a couple of weeks off work to recuperate. I also think he got a small um, compensation for, for the trauma. Um, but he went back to work and uh, he was 38 when the, when the Leinster sank. And he went to full retirement age with the Postal Service. And um, he died at 75 years of age in 1955. I believe postal workers all over the UK and all over Ireland made a collection to contribute to uh, the families of the people who had perished. That's right. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. But I think that money would have gone mainly to people who lost yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, relations, um, husbands and fathers, and that. I'm not sure that his compensation was was much. It was. I'm not sure about that now, to be quite honest. But I wouldn't imagine it was as much as what might have been paid out to others. Right. Is it a story that you have researched a lot? I haven't gone into it in uh, enormous detail, but I, because I, I have um, his account, so I I, I always felt um, that I. Uh, Knowing that insider story, uh, that precluded me from actually trying to look uh, at more detail. But I did actually, um, I, I researched the, the submarine that sh- that uh, sank it. That was UB-123. That's right. Yeah. A, a guy called Ram was the um, commander. And uh, it's believed that it sank in the North Sea Barrage, trying to get back to its base in Germany. Hutchinson Ingham Cohn was a famous naval engineer and officer. During the Spanish-American War, he served as assistant engineer on the USS Baltimore during Commodore George Dewey's victory over the Spanish in the Battle of Manila Bay in the Philippines in 1898. Later, he commanded naval forces in Europe during World War I. Cohn was wounded but still managed to free lifeboats on board the Leinster after she was torpedoed and about to sink. And, not surprisingly, there's a West Cork connection. To find out more, I head for Whitty Island off the coast of Bantry, where the Americans had a base here during World War I. Here on the island, Tim O'Leary and his wife Kathleen run the bankhouse, pub and restaurant. Tim is uncle to Tyke Furlong, Leinster and Irish international rugby player. Tim is also the ferry operator for Whitty. A number of years ago, Tim attended a talk given by Ted O'Sullivan at Ballancolic Rugby Club. The subject was the American base at Whitty, and the connection with the sinking of the Leinster came up. This was enough for Tim to research further. And it was during this that I came across the fact that some of the servicemen in Whitty, I actually had heard very little about the Linster. I didn't know very little about it until I was doing a bit of, we'll say, poking around and a bit of research and I found out that some of the servicemen from Whitty were on the Linster when she was torpedoed. From then then I just done a little bit more and a little bit more and I found it a very interesting story. That would have been seaplanes, would they? They would have been seaplanes, yeah. yeah. They're flying boats. They're actually flying boats. Not like the seaplanes we have today. The, the hull of the plane was actually the same as the boat. So they, they landed without any skids or anything. They were, the hull landed underwater, yeah. Were there many on the island? There was uh, there was never more than four at any one time, but there was five planes in total float with it. Yeah, right. They were patrolling the um, the approaches for the Americans trying to combat the U-boats. There was one in Whitty, there was one in Ahida, there was one in Wexford Town, and there was one in the north. So what happened then on the Leinster? Well, yeah, the Americans, even though the bases were here in Ireland, their main base was in Killingham in England. And they sent over a guy to inspect the bases. He was actually... Um, he was, an, he was an engineer, really, and he was he was sent over to inspect all the bases, and he had toured, he'd been in Whitty, he'd been in Queenstown. His name was Hutchinson Ingham Cohn, and he was a captain at that time. And he was after inspecting all the bases, and he was heading back to England to the, the base, and he was unfortunate enough, I suppose, to be on the Linster going back. So 
he was on the Linster and there's a book called Torpedoed by Philip Lacane and that's where I, I was reading that and that's how I found out the Whitty connection really um, he was on the deck and when the second torpedo she was, she was hit twice the second torpedo hit her yeah, the first one missed. The first one missed, yeah. yeah. The second, so the, when, the, when the one hit, the deck came up underneath him and bro- actually broke his two legs. He was helping as best he could, and he actually got into a bit of, I don't know, was it a table or something, it was a bit of furniture, and he was floating around on that. And next thing he noticed, the Americans that time were called the blue coats, they had a blue coat, they were a very distinct coat, and he noticed one guy floating in the water. And he pulled him onto this, whatever he was floating on, and he, his name was William Russell, and he was a master manner on the base on the island. So then they, they, after a while, they found another blue coat, and he was called Joseph Leo Hogan he was from New York and they pulled him but he was actually dead and there was one other I think his name was Roderick Perry from the base in, ahead of died on the ship there was probably other US personnel as well Christians all in country or in town Come listen to my doleful song Which I have just penned down Tis all about the wartime act That awful tragedy When the Dublin mailboat Leinster was sunk in the Irish Sea On the 10th day of October 1918 being the year The mailboat on her passage went I mean to let you hear With 690 passengers And 70 of a crew she sailed from Kingstown Key for Hollyhead bound to... There is some truth in the saying, faraway fields are green. Mary Howell, her son Nicholas, and two daughters Ida and Henrietta seemingly found this out in New Zealand. Conditions were very harsh, and passengers, hangers-on, those not willing to work hard, or those who did not possess a skill of some sort, would not survive. And it was probably the lack of skills, coupled with the harsh conditions, that eventually caught up with the Howells. How long exactly they spent in New Zealand is not certain, because there's a 20-year gap before they can be pinned down again. It's 1896, and records show the family back in Wallaceley in Liverpool once more. Fast forward five years, and the Irish census records of 1901 show the family living in Ivy Bank in Lislee, Court McSherry. This was a house that was owned by the Church of Ireland. No. We can only surmise, but it would seem that they weren't well off financially and the family, who had no previous connection with Court McSherry at all, are living in this house, which is owned by the Church of Ireland. That house had previously been a school and was now vacant. And, well, Mary Howell was born in Castle Lyons, as, as we said at the beginning, into a well-respected Church of Ireland family. And perhaps this was the Church of Ireland giving a handout to somebody who, of their own religious persuasion, who had fallen on hard times. Yeah. And at this stage, she was 76 years of age. So maybe it was somebody that she knew in the Church of Ireland who knew somebody else in the Church of Ireland who knew somebody in Court McSherry. Exactly, yeah. at a vacant house, and they, got, and they, yeah. and they, went to, they came to live there. 
It's the second and concluding programme which looks at the sinking of the mailboat NV Leinster 100 years ago on October 10th, 1918. Struck by two torpedoes fired from German submarine 123, 569 of the 771 passengers and crew on board lost their lives. Taking a cork angle, we speak to relatives of some who perished on the Irish Sea that morning 100 years ago and sadly only a few short weeks from Armistice Day and the end of World War I. Part 2 and Programme 2 follows in a few moments. On this evening's edition of Where the Road Takes Me, we continue and conclude the story of the sinking of the mailboat Leinster off the Kish Light in the Irish Sea 100 years ago on October 10th, 1918. Welcome back to part two in Programme Two. Mary Howell had been born into a Church of Ireland family in Castle Lyons 70 years previously, so we can assume that the family had fallen on hard times and were now being assisted by their church in finding a new home. In the Irish census of 1901, the family are recorded as living in Ivy Bank, Lislee Court McSherry in West Cork. Mary, now in her 70s, is here, as is Nicholas, her son, and her daughters, Ida and Henrietta. At the house, I meet Dermot O'Mahony, who's a former cox of Court McSherry lifeboat. The house is in Bellicon Lane, and we're looking out south, south, east, I'd say, and maybe south. And we're looking out in Court McSherry Bay, beautiful view of the bay. You can see the old head away, way to the east, looking down over Coolum Cliffs, Broad Strand, Blind Strand. Grand clear day today, John, and uh, a beautiful view. The whole family, they came here around 1900. Their grandparents originally came were from County Cork and that, but then the family travelled a lot. They were very much pioneers. They went to Canada at one stage and, and, and they were in New Zealand at another stage. But anyway, the two sisters that lived here, they came to live here with their mother and brother. The mother was a widow at that stage. And even though our family was involved in business at different stages, they fell upon hard times too and they weren't very well off. So this house was actually belonged to the Church of Ireland and it was... Um, it's, it's, the building outside it was a school, so I, I presume this was the teacher's house. But the school ceased here around that time, and the whole family, through their connections with the Church of Ireland, I think they were granted tenancy by Canon Ford, who was director at the time. Now, that's the same Canon Ford the that Lusitania. was... The, yeah, that was yeah. the, the lifeboat secretary at the time in Lusitania. Now, when the house came to live here, they named the house Isamore. Is a moor, I Z U M O, which I understand is a Maori name meaning a little corner of heaven. They had been in New Zealand yeah. and they had been in Canada. Like yeah. actually, the two girls that went from here and over actually born in Canada. They lived here then until the day they left to go to England. Their mother died in the meantime and their brother. And then there was um, the people at Church of Ireland then set up a place for them in England where they would be home for them there where they would live with that. And so they left here then on the 9th of October 1918, almost 100 years ago to the day. They were going to go to England. So they went from Cork to Dunleary, Kingstone, as was known at that time. And they went to, to go across to England on the, um, the mailboat, the Leinster. But unfortunately, as we all know, the Leinster was only a little bit east of the Kish Light when she encountered a German submarine. 
Earlier, while on Whitty Island, ferryman Tim O'Leary was telling us about the American base that was on the island during World War I and how a number of the servicemen based there were on board the mailboat Leinster on that fateful day of October 10th, 1918. Some owe their lives on that day to a famous naval engineer and officer, Hutchinson Ingham Cohn, who was also on board. Despite the fact he had broken both his legs, Tim says he still worked at freeing the lifeboats and saving lives. They were saved. He was taken ashore. And he was doing all this with two broken legs. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was made a commander of the British Empire. Of those. He got an award for his bravery that day anyway. He was brought back into Dublin and he was nursed there back to health. The American servicemen that were killed, they were buried, they were buried in a cemetery in England. He went back to work. He went back to. He went back, but he was. It, it kind of affected him. He he retired out of the navy in 1922. He was semi invalided out of it. You know, his legs never fully recovered. But he was actually an engineer. And when he retired out of the navy, I just found when I when I started looking into this Hutchinson Ingham Cohn, then I found out that he was a fascinating man in his own right. He was his engineering was his speciality. He was um, he was like he was on committees with Charles Lindbergh and all these guys. He was he was up at the top aviators in 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 um, trying to promote aviation in the 20s. But when he retired in 1922. He went. At, he died in 1941. So in 1944, the Americans built a destroyer. It's a gearing class destroyer called the Hutchinson Ingham Cone, and it served in Vietnam and Korea. But it also, when Alan Shepard and John Glynn when they orbited the Earth, his destroyer was the one that picked up their part and they landed. Right. So I just thought it was a nice little tie in. To, sure, yeah. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was it a big American base in Whitty? It was. There was in excess of 400 Americans on the base. Yeah, it was, it was a huge yeah. construction site. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's no talk about um, like there's also a big oil company in Ireland. Zenith Energy now yeah. but they called that the construction so that was a huge job in its day but the base was called the Whitty Works in its day so that was not a big 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 job Do you think a lot of people around here are aware of that connection with the Leinster? I, I wouldn't think so because it was just by chance I came across it I didn't really realise until a couple of years ago right. and it was because I was just looking into something specific you know I didn't realise that there was such a connection and to be honest I, think, I think most people had never I hadn't really heard much of the Leinster I didn't know much about it until I read about it and, and then I came across it so. well, he, he must have been a brave man Oh he must have been an exceptional man and uh, like even he was, he was one of the guys that helped the American Navy he's one of these fellas that, that you know they're involved in all these momentous events but you never hear much about them he was one of the fellas that was um, keep a low profile yeah he was, he was engineering was his speciality and he was um, one of the guys who was involved in changing the American Navy from coal ships to, to oil ships probably so they could get a bigger range and all that yeah. the submarine it came at them when they did least expect and fire torpedoes at the boat which quickly took effect her boilers burst the flames ascend with fury to the sky mid echoes of the deafening din you could hear the women cry you feeling hearted Christians all in country or in town Come listen to my doleful song which I have just penned down Tis all about the wartime act, that awful tragedy When the Dublin mailboat Leinster was sunk in the Irish Sea Oh, the Leinster now is sinking fast and she is gone
Word regarding the sinky of the Leinster had got back to Dublin by 10.30am on the morning of the 10th. Reading the account of Jack Higgins, the only postal worker to survive, one can only imagine what he had witnessed after the second torpedo had struck the ship, watching from the lifeboat and seeing hundreds of people go down with the Leinster. For Dorothy Brophy's grandmother, the dreadful news would soon reach her that her husband had been killed when the first torpedo had struck the ship in the bow, where he and his fellow postal workers had been sorting mail for Britain. After suffering the trauma of a number of miscarriages, the young Mrs. Brophy did not realise at this stage that she was pregnant, and her husband had died without knowing that he was to become a father for the first time. There's a lot of blank there because I never knew my grandmother sadly she died before I was born. Obviously it was a hugely sad event for her and she wouldn't have known that she was pregnant at the time. Um, my father was born the following year and her face was a beautiful looking woman um, and you can see the remarkable change in her, you know, racked with grief and yet she has the joy of a son that she had so longed for but she had this son who was my father who was obviously able to grow up as an only child and life was hard for them. I imagine had just had huge grief despite the joy of having her boy and she reared to you know cherished him and I mean we used to tease my father who's long dead God rest him about being spoiled but I mean of course he was he wasn't spoiled but of course he was cherished and for example he didn't like the white of an egg so my grandmother would cook the yolk for him (laughs) and she made meringues with the whites apparently and he wouldn't eat the you know the bony bits of a cabbage so she'd cut them out But my mother jokingly always said, well, she got, she bet that out of him or she trained him out of that, you know. But certainly it affected, I mean, he, it, it, there was huge sadness in my father regarding his own father. He wouldn't have talked very much about it, but I do recall event, an event when I was probably in my early 20s, you know, at a time when you think you know everything, you know. My father at this stage was in a wheelchair and a neighbour of ours in Dublin had retired from the post office service and had been going through papers and whatever in his office and came across the postal I think it's called the postal telegraph the internal journal of the uh, post office workers and he gave this to my father uh, and I happened to be in the room I think after the man had left to a lovely neighbour called Patrick Mulcahy he was a very jolly man and my father was going through it and I think he probably had seen it before because I, I subsequently found a copy in the house but I was amazed at my father crying and I was kind of wondering why is he crying sure he didn't know him and then a dog to be sure that's exactly why he's crying because he didn't know his father he was deprived of that and so his life you know the the circumstances of life were very much determined by the fact that he was the child of a widow in in those times when she wouldn't have had a widow's pension I don't know how she survived financially Um, he was a very bright boy and so his education was determined by scholarship and he did very well in school he did get the chance for third level but he couldn't possibly take it up because he needed to at that stage of his life to earn money to support his mother who had supported him all those years so I think there was a huge emotional sadness but there was also circumstances you know his, his life circumstances were determined because of what happened you know to his family before yeah. he was ever born It's very true to say that the Howells were a pioneering family who had travelled the world. Remember what we had said again at the very beginning, that their story would encompass three continents and four countries. 
By 1901, Mary, the matriarch, her son Nicholas, and her daughters Ida and Henrietta are now living in Lisley, Court McSherry. The two sisters would remain here until 1918. Mary died in Court McSherry in 1904 at the age of 80. Her son Nicholas lived another 13 years and died in 1917 at the age of 68. Both he and his mother are buried in Lisley Cemetery. Ida and Henrietta were now on their own, aged 59 and 61. Mary O'Leary, a Cork City and Cork McSherry-based historian, has been researching this intriguing but often confusing story that is about to come to a tragic end. No, not old, but on the other hand, bear in mind they've had a very tough life up to this, you know, and who knows what, what stage of health and, and, and ability they were in. So what we know about them after that actually comes in 1919. So we, we're, we're moving forward, if you like, to go back. There was an application made to probate their wills. The two sisters wrote their wills on the 28th of August 1918, appointing David Hall, who was a solicitor from Cork, and the Reverend James Walter Ford, who was the minister here in, in, in Lisley. They were the executors. And in an affidavit of the court, Mr Hall said that he had acted as agent for the sisters since the death of their brother. And because of their small income and for other reasons, he obtained a house for the Howell sisters in an institution known as Whiteley's Village in Walton-on-Thames in England, where they would live free of rent and other expenses and receive a small annuity. That again suggests that they were in straitened circumstances and that whatever money their brother had left would not be enough to give them an income to live out the rest of their lives in Gorbeck Sherry. He said of their small income and other reasons, and I've been thinking about that, and 1918 was probably the start of the flight of the Protestants, especially those of Anglo-Irish stock from Ireland and particularly from County Cork. They may have been nervous as well. Remember, they were born in Canada. They had spent time in England. They spent time in New Zealand. They may have felt their foreignness, if you like, and maybe that was the reason they wanted, you know, and they availed of this opportunity to go to England. So Mr Hall said he'd arranged all the details of their change of residence and given Ida £9 and Henrietta £3 in treasury notes, together with their tickets to London via Kingstown and Hollyhead. They left Cork on Wednesday the 9th and intended to stay the night in the Pier Hotel Kingstown before crossing to Hollyhead the following day on the mailboat, the Leinster. And that brings an end to part two in programme two, the concluding programme looking back 100 years to the sinking of the mailboat Leinster. The final part in the final programme on the Leinster and the families who were affected by its sinking is close by. And that's right after the break.
October 10th, 1918 was a grim day in Irish history. The sinking of the mailboat Leinster would become the biggest marine disaster on the Irish Sea. From a crew and passenger list of 771, 569 people lost their lives when the vessel sank after being hit with two of three torpedoes fired from German submarine UB-123, captained by Robert Ram, who was still in his 20s. Matthew Brophy was one of 21 postal workers who died that day. Neither he nor his colleagues stood a chance when the first of two torpedoes hit the bow, which was exactly where the postal sorting area was located on the ship. Matthew Brophy died without knowing that he was to become a father. Dorothy Brophy is originally from Dublin. She's the librarian in Castletown Bear on the Bear Peninsula. She obviously never knew her grandfather, but she says that her father, who was an only child, was taken to the hearts of all the family. He was very much cherished by his, his mother's people in, in Tipperary and we still you know, have relationships with our cousins, our second cousins, who would be the children of his first cousins. So his siblings, in effect, were his first cousins around the Thurless area who were wonderful to him and still talk about him. You know, as our spoke, they're all dead now. They spoke about him with such fondness and loved him visiting and so on. So he was lucky in that, in that regard that he was very much cherished by those people. And we're lucky that we have some of the stories that they... They have heard from their, their cousins have heard from their um, parents about him, you know. You know, obviously he met my mother and he had his own family and there was great joy in that for him. But I think basically there was a profound sadness in him all his life because of the loss of his father. Right. You've shown me two photographs of your grandmother prior to the sinking and after the sinking. Now, there's only a space of six years in the photographs, but the grief is evident very on her, on her so. face, yeah. Yeah, very much evident, yeah. Yeah, very much evident in her. Yeah, I mean, her, yeah, she was a stunning attractive young woman you know beautifully dressed for, obviously for the photograph she might have been like that every day but she certainly was for the photograph but then the photograph of her with her little boy obviously she's delighted to have her son but uh, you can see the grief very much in her eyes you know she's very sad mm. that she's not sharing this with his dad You've done quite a lot of research into this of course haven't you? Well I have yes out of curiosity you know for, for I suppose the background to my father's story and I did actually give a talk to the Historical Society in Castleton Bear seven years ago and they've asked me to reprise it so I'm going to do it again in November after the centenary. I've found out a few more bits and pieces since then, including the fact that the Postal Service of the UK held a collection to help the dependents of those lost, the, the postal workers. Right, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, so they collected uh, a large sum of money and then divided. They had a formula. So for every widow got a certain amount of money and every dependent got a smaller amount of money. So my grandmother would have got that amount of money. And apparently she, inv- from what I can gather, she invested that. She was advised by some of her cousins or her, her relations to invest it, not to spend it. So she invested it. And I think, you know, 20 years later, she and my father bought the house that we grew up in, in Clontarf. So yeah, that yeah, she, you know, she she did the best thing she could do with the bit of money she yeah. got, you know. But as to regards how she survived day to day, I don't know how she survived. I know she would have, um, um, people, you know, for, people would have come to stay with her, and they probably would have paid her, you know, as a boarder or something like that, you know, in the early years of my father's life.
So the Leinster was only 7.4 kilometres outside Dublin Bay when she was hit by three torpedoes fired from a German submarine UB-123. That was the 10th of October, 1918. The mailboat sank in a very short time and 569 of the 771 on board were drowned. And this was the greatest ever single loss of life in the Irish Sea. And just one month away from truce. Just one month away from the armistice. And ironically, 10 days after the, the 10th of October, the German submarine UB-123, was, which torpedoed the Leinster, was hit by a, a mine itself and all the 33 crew on board were all drowned. Something like the Lusitania. Something yeah. like the Lusitania. And, you know, they were victims as well. You know, there's no doubt about it. They yeah. were. I suppose when you look at it from the German point of view, the Leinster would have been fair game because it was full of military personnel. Apparently, yeah. there were 500 of the places on board the, the Leinster on its trips over and back reserved for military personnel because there was constant coming and going I mean between the Curra and between Irishmen coming and going from the war that sort of thing so 500 of the places on board that ship were always and it, it was painted in camouflage so it was fair game yeah. it was fair game yeah. you know even more so than the Lusitania almost absolutely yeah. absolutely and you know in a narrow sea like the Irish Sea it was a sitting duck am I correct in saying that within say the, the waters around Great Britain and the waters around Ireland shipping in there merchant shipping wouldn't have been escorted or well, no, I mean, that, that was some of the criticism that, that was levelled afterwards. But, you know, and again, very like the Lusitania, the Admiralty and the British government tried to shut down any sort of um, discussion or criticism or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I gather the Irish Independent was shut for four days after it because it reported the uh, sinking of the Leinster before they got permission from the censor. And they shut the Independent for four days. You know, they really were trying to keep a lead on all these sort of things. No, it's very hard to keep a lead on 569 people being yeah. drowned. How do you do it? You don't, yeah. you don't, you don't, you, don't, yeah. you know. I mean, because all the bodies were being brought into Kingston, Dunleary as it is now, and being piled up on the quay, you know? Up until now, it would seem that not a lot of people were aware of this tragedy and the fact that it took place in Irish waters and resulted in such a huge number of deaths. Some historians are of the opinion that the sinking of the mailboat Leinster was conveniently forgotten to suit various sides. For instance, after a year of the sinking, the War of Independence broke out. An independent Irish state was formed at the end of this conflict, so it suited each side to deliberately forget the part played by Irish men and women in the First World War. Historians have also been accused of understating the extent of the tragedy stating that 176 people lost their lives on that morning. This could possibly be due to His Majesty's Stationery Office publication at the time. The publication, entitled British Vessels and Merchant Ships Lost at Sea between 1914 and 1918. The publication completely understates the number of people who perished. And the final reason is simple, a complete lack of information, with the exception of Dunlera and Hollyhead, where it's constantly remembered. Well, Michael Hall's great-grandfather, Jack Higgins, was the only postal worker to survive the sinking. The irony of Armistice Day being just a few weeks after the tragedy hasn't been lost on his family, but they weren't aware of any efforts to downplay or forget the sinking. That's the irony of it, that it was a month away from the end of the war. And I think Ireland, aside from, I think, was it 50,000 Irishmen died in World War I? Aside from that, I think Ireland basically escaped any kind of um, war damage or uh, tragedy other than the people who had enlisted in the British Army and died in the the trenches. And it was quite a shocking event a, a month from end of war just outside Dublin Port that hundreds of people were killed like that. 
Have your family spoken about the fact that this is a tragedy that seemed to be, for a long while, brushed under the carpet? Uh, no, I don't. Certainly, I haven't that impression, obviously, because it was a story in my family. And maybe if I had no personal connection to it, I mean, I mean I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people I've spoken to over my lifetime will say up until relatively recently they'd never heard of the Leinster or the fact that it was the largest maritime disaster in Irish waters. So in that sense, maybe it hasn't been heralded as as a tragic event very publicly in the past, but it is being now, obviously. Apart from possibly William, who seems to have prospered in New Zealand, life for the remainder of the Howell family was filled with tragedy, disappointment and hardship. They were definitely adventurous and enthusiastic, but unfortunately rarely successful. Maybe, at some stage, during their time in Court McSherry, long overdue happiness may have been present, but rare. And now, on October 10th, 1918, Ida and Henrietta were on the move again in search of a new life that tragically would never happen. No, Henrietta, who was 62 at the time, her body was recovered and she's buried in an unmarked grave in Mount Jerome. But Ida's body was never recovered. So that's the story. I mean, they lived lives with many setbacks and suffered financial hardship. They travelled from Canada to England on a sailing ship. They endured a void of 76 days on another sailing ship to travel to New Zealand. After this disappointment of that chapter of their lives, they made the journey back to England. They travelled to Ireland and they thought they were going to have, you know, a peaceful life here. That didn't work out. And then on that last voyage, which was taking them into secure retirement, they lost their lives. There are shades of the Lusitania tragedy linked with the Leinster. Both tragedies happened during World War I. On both occasions, and because of what the ships were carrying, German U-boat commanders viewed them as legitimate wartime targets. But unlike the Lusitania, it seems that no warnings were given to those travelling on board Leinster. Certainly, as we've already heard, the postal workers would be well aware of the daily risks they faced, as were the military personnel. But what about the likes of Ida and Henrietta Howell and the other 180 civilians on board? Was a short voyage to Holyhead and being so close to Britain likely to pose any risk? Historian Mary O'Leary. You'd imagine, but, but you know, it would appear not. Uh, I mean, you know, it was the mailboat. There were all those poor, unfortunate postal sorters down in the bowels of the ship, going back and forth every day between Ireland and Wales. Some of them Irish, some of them Welsh, and that they were doing that every day. And nobody thought about them either. Mm-hmm. They don't. There doesn't appear to have been any particular warning that somebody's people like Henrietta and Ida Howell could purchase two tickets and off they went. After the tragedy, a collection was made all over Britain and Ireland by postal workers to support the families of those who had lost their lives. A quick look at some of the highest collections revealed that Galway collected £67, Hollyhead £33, Sligo £41, Bristol £25 and in Bandon they collected £12. Having lost her husband and having a newborn baby, Dorothy Brophy's grandmother was the recipient of money from the collection, which was allocated in a certain fashion. Yes, this was uh, given to me by the on Post Museum. The staff there gave me this report. It was a voluntary collection taken up by the Postal Service 
throughout the UK because obviously we were part of the UK and so it lists all the post offices who contribute and the amount and, and it even lists Bantry which of course would have been covering Beira in those days mm-hmm. as it, I suppose it's still the head, off, head office for here so when they did, made the collection they were able to work out a formula so in, in my grandmother's case she would have got £225 as a widow each of the widows would have got that much and then because she had one child under 8 years she'd have got an additional £75 so she would have got £300 contribution to her life from that collection and then there was a, an odd amount left over that they divided evenly between each family so she would have got £313 two shillings and fourpence which is the amount of money that we reckon she invested. By today's money we reckon that would have amounted to £15,358 approximately. Finally, Dorothy Brophy believes that there has been attempts to airbrush the tragedy from our history down through the years. My own children have um, done history projects for their Leaving Cert. Two of them did it on the Leinster. And on, on mentioning it to their teachers, they, their teachers were kind of like, the what? You know? Yeah. So, and that's no disrespect to the teachers. It just, it was just airbrushed out of history, you yeah. know? It wasn't popular. I suppose it was before we were independent. Obviously, there were British, Irish men fighting as British soldiers and people have an issue with that. And of course, then as soon as we get our independence, we want to forget all that, which we can't forget our history. Yeah. We can't forget who we are, you know? In the days that followed the sinking, bodies were recovered from the sea. Funerals took place in many parts of Ireland, as well as Britain, Canada and the United States. Among those who died was 19-year-old Josephine Carr from Cork, a shorthand typist. She was the first ever member of the Wrens, or Women's Royal Naval Service, to be killed on active service. My thanks to all who took part in the programme and to all who helped in any way. Thanks to John Foot on Sound and to you for joining us this week. We dedicate both programmes to all who died in the Irish Sea on that morning of October 10th, 1918. Until Sunday evening next at 7 on Where the Road Takes Me, this is John Green wishing you a very pleasant week and goodbye for now. on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.